0: Major League Soccer kicks off Lionel Messi's first full season today. Plus, we check in on two Spanish powerhouses going in opposite directions, and later I chat with the Athletic's Melissa Lockhart as we try to figure out where the A's are going to play after this season. It's Wednesday, February 21st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The biggest star in the world's most popular sport begins his first full season in MLS tonight as Inter-Miami takes on Real Salt Lake. Apple has made MLS its signature sports property, and today it is releasing a docu-series that chronicles Lionel Messi's quest for his first World Cup victory. I spoke with the executive producers of that series on what they learned from telling his story. All right, I am joined now by the executive producers of Messi's World Cup, Juan Camilo Cruz-Orego and Jenna Millman. Welcome, Juan. Welcome, Jenna.
1: Thank you so much, Owen.
2: Yeah, thank you for having us, Owen.
0: Yeah, great to have you on. Um, So, oh, you just put out this four-part docuseries on Lionel Messi. What did you learn about the character of Messi through making this series?
1: What was really striking watching the footage is that uh, we have this pretty great behind the scenes stuff of him in the compound with the team. Mind you, he was an icon when he when he started this, right? He had already achieved everything he possibly could achieve except for this one thing. He was an idol to many of the players on his team, yet he chose to, you know, he he ate with the players, he played cards with his teammates, he was on the bus with his teammates, he didn't live in different quarters. And I think that says so much about somebody at his stature and his level that Really, day to day during this process, he was one of the one of the guys and sort of in every moment that they went through. Um, And as he says in the in the series very well, that this becomes your family. And I think that says quite a lot about him as a a person uh, outside of the superstardom.
0: Uh, you're telling the story now after he com- completes the the mission of winning the World Cup, but also at a time when he's being introduced to an American audience that has probably heard the name, but might not know a whole lot about him. Was it like you know telling the story of a legend who is you know one of the most known people in the world, but at the same time is still being introduced to one of the biggest markets in the world.
2: I think that's the spectacular combination that we have, which is fantastic. You know, the fact that we have such a, an amazing story that many people might not know it gives us the chance to bring to the American audiences to one of the most amazing stories ever. And I think that's the reason why they can feel excited to actually get to know this person that they might have heard about and know the name, have seen, but not to really go deep into understanding his story and his, you know, 20 year more um, journey. So I think for us, it was just a, it's an amazing opportunity.
1: And I would just add to that, that uh, even for people who are avid followers and have been fans also, I think in the series, um, they will find something new and learn quite a bit as well, because again, he has always spoken with his feet in a brilliant way, but in this, in the series, he was very generous with his, with his time and his thoughts and his spirit, but he, he, tells his story in his own way, um, in his own words. And it's really the first time he's done that, um, from his, in, and therefore I think it kind of makes it a definitive, a definitive, um, take on his journey.
0: And is there a reason that this was the moment when he was willing to, to tell his own story, you know, not just, uh, f- throw him his play on the field, but th- through actually talking about it. Is it just that he finally won?
2: Well, we didn't know, right? Exactly. I think I agree with exactly what you know I was going to say. Like he didn't know and we didn't know that he was going to win. So it was a completely unknown. But he knew that it was definitely a very important moment in his career that deserved to be captured and that he wanted to experience, you know, because of course you want to win. But you also know that you are not going to have a World Cup again and and and, and not just the fact of winning, but being there and experience a world cup and playing and get the nerves and the goosebumps, I guess, as you can imagine, it must be such an amazing experience that I think he really wanted to experience it and to leave it and to, you know, squeeze it as much as he could. And that's something that you can get out of the footage.
0: And now that he's in MLS, um, in so much of that leagues, you know, marketing and storytelling and, you know, all the excitement coming into this season is around this, this one person. And, you know, we've seen him lift entire teams on his back and, like, be the guy. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what it's going to be like for the league and for him to kind of have his whole league on his back.
1: Messi has been able to accomplish the impossible uh, at many, you know, many different moments in his career. And I think one of the things, Juan and I have talked a lot about this, that... uh, Guest on a duel, one of the experts at our show um, says that he didn't win this World Cup because he, of his talent. He won it because of his perseverance and his willingness to keep on trying, to keep coming up, coming back, to keep showing up. Um, and I think that that sort of is a predictor of, of his uh, the way he approaches any challenge at all um, is you know to keep coming back, to keep showing up, and to grit, just sort of. You know, to to do the work that needs
0: to be done. Uh, and as we kind of enter this sort of, I, I guess I shouldn't say the epilogue stage of his career, but you know, he, he's he's done so much, and and MLS, I, to me, it sort of feels like this this bonus stage of like, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Now he's in the states; it's sort of a brand new, fresh start. I was wondering if you guys are going to be watching for anything in terms of, you know, of uh, his his next, you know, couple of years here.
1: So uh, having not been a major mess, even not that I wasn't a fan, but I did, I was one of the one of the many Americans who didn't know the ins and outs, right? But having now watched and examined the footage, um, his moments of brilliance on the field are just so remarkable. There's particularly a moment in, in one of our, I think it's episode two, where Gary Lineker is describing why Messi is so different. And the fact that he will sometimes be standing on the field and it looks like he's not doing anything, but he's watching. He's just watching as everything else goes by. And then he just out of nowhere comes up with this play that's, Magic. That's just magic. Um, so I'm looking for more of those, more of those moments.
0: Juan Camilo Cruz Jenna Milman, thanks so much for joining us on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having us, i Really appreciate it.
0: Sticking with soccer, Kylian Mbappe has a signature goal celebration with his arms crossed and his thumbs up, and now he's seeking to make it legally his own. Mbappé recently filed trademarks for his name and that move, which is just one more way he is following in the footsteps of Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, who trademarked their own celebrations. If the application is successful, anyone selling merchandise with his name or a depiction of the Mbappé move would have to compensate the French superstar, and there is likely to be a new influx of Mbappé merch and fans, because next season he is headed to Real Madrid. The Spanish side, currently tops in La Liga, will be paying him $243 million over five years. Things are very different with Real Madrid's longtime rival, Barcelona, who just saw its spending limit cut to $221 million. La Liga sets a limit on each individual club based on their revenue, debt payments, and other lines in their balance sheet. In September, Barca saw its limit cut by $410 million down to $292 million, so this latest cut is at worst the second biggest financial disaster Barca has had to deal with this season. Real Madrid, by contrast, is looking down from the top of the cliff with a limit of 786 million and one of the biggest stars in the world preparing for a five-year stay. The college football playoff has officially changed formats. We already knew that the CFP was tripling, from four teams to 12, and on Tuesday, CFP officials voted to make it a 5-plus-7 format instead of 6-plus-6. That means the five highest-ranked conference champions automatically get in, along with seven spots for the next highest-ranked teams. So the situation we had last season when undefeated Florida State was denied a spot in the CFP won't happen. Realistically, it wasn't going to anyway with the expansion to 12 teams, but this adds an extra layer of protection. But why 5 plus 7 instead of 6 plus 6? That has to do with the Pac-12 becoming the Pac-2. The remaining schools in that conference, Oregon State and Washington State, aren't eligible for conference champion spots at the moment because the conference does not meet the CFP's 8 school membership threshold. All of this is part of the CFP getting its ducks in a row and showing that it can operate smoothly in a post-realignment world as it negotiates a new set of media deals. Its current deals run through the 2025 season. Up next, there are conflicting reports over where the Oakland A's are most likely to play next season with the Oakland Coliseum and Sacramento the current, supposed frontrunners, but nothing with this team should be taken seriously until there is a deal in place and even then things can still get screwy. Melissa Lockhart has been chronicling this team over the many years in which they've been saying they are going to move. We tried to make sense of what is going on with this team, and that conversation is coming up next. I'm joined now by senior editor and staff writer at The Athletic, Melissa Lockhart. Welcome, Melissa.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, great to have you on. Um, So we've both been you know, tracking the saga of the A's since even before then, you know, this whole move to Vegas for years now. Um, But let's start with some recent news. The the A's are once again talking to Oakland about playing in the Coliseum from 2025 to 2027 when their Vegas stadium will supposedly be ready by 2028. How did that news hit you when you first saw it?
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised. I think I'm surprised that they hadn't tried to do this earlier just because there is no other solution that would make any sense. This is still a major league baseball team, regardless of how they're currently constructed. Um, and they need to play in a major league stadium and there are no other major league stadiums that are options. You know, they, um, the triple a park in Las Vegas is a very nice triple a park, but it's still a triple a park and it's, you know, populated by another team. The salt Lake city situation, I think would have been really weird to go to a very small secondary stadium in Salt Lake City just to build up for then moving to another venue. Um, It just created this sort of nomadic thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if the player association has kind of gotten involved a little bit too to say, listen, you know, these are major league baseball players that need to have facilities that match, you know, like on the minor league side, they're forcing all these communities to rebuild their minor league stadiums to create facilities that match they're not going to let a major league team have facilities that don't match that so um you know as much as we denigrate like uh different parts of the Oakland Coliseum like it's got a huge locker room. There's a lot of things that are, you know, there for for inside cages and things like that. You don't get in a minor league park. So, like, um, they need to make this happen because they need to still be a functioning major league team for the next three years. So, um, I'm not surprised, but I also am surprised that it's been so scorched earth up to this point because they've made this negotiation much more difficult than I think it needed to be for them had they approached this a lot differently.
0: If you're Oakland's. All right. Basically, are you just asking for more money or what, what do you think Oakland can do here?
3: Yeah, I mean, they do have a lot of leverage here. And, and it, it, the, again, the way that the A's have approached this entire process is they can't possibly have had much foresight or kind of planning in advance because there's no way a negotiation would be done this way. They've taken any leverage they possibly could have had and basically binned it, you know, so um there are limits to what the A's can ask for just because I mean, what the city of Oakland can ask for, because the A's can't be the like final arbiter of what, you know, Major League Baseball is going to decide about expansion or whatever else. But on the flip side, I could see them saying we want half of that media money. And I'm not really sure what like the A's could do to say no, because at this point, it's like you you know, 35 million is still a lot more than no million, which is what you would have in Salt Lake City or what you would have in, even in Sacramento. So um, there is a lot more leverage that they could have here. I don't know that it's going to necessarily be the solution that every single person is going to like, you know, love from a, a optics perspective. But I, I would have to think the city is going to come out with a lot more either financially or otherwise than they would have done if the aides had like come to the city at the beginning of all this and tried to negotiate a lease extension at that point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Zooming out a little bit, I I, I was talking to your colleague, Tim Kawakami, recently. Uh, I've had David Sampson on the show a number of times to talk about this. And Tim was saying this is not going to happen by 2028, Samson is just not convinced it's happening at all the move to Vegas how inevitable does it feel to you that at some point they're gonna make it there
3: 50 50 I don't know I mean wow, okay. I'm, not a, yeah. I'm not a gambler right like I, yeah. I would, you know Vegas is not my bag so I would be terrible at like actually putting a bet and like uh giving you good odds but I really don't get the sense that this is any way close to any more of a done deal than it was the day that they, maybe even less of a done deal than the day that they announced that, you know, they had gotten the funding for it. I mean, um, you've seen no push towards it from a public a publicity perspective, you know, that, that whole chamber of commerce showing was incredibly embarrassing. Um, you know, I think, I don't know if it was you or somebody else had pointed out that they just had a Super Bowl week in that city. And not once were, were the A's mentioned as part of the whole, like, sports capital of the world, Las Vegas kind of thing. there's just no positive momentum towards it right now. You've got no renderings that are actually realistic for the space that they're in. You've got, um, you know, the the company that's going to be closing Tropicana is in financial trouble themselves. You've got the surrounding areas being like, I don't know where the stadium's going to be. It keeps moving around. You know, it's almost like they're playing Sim City and they keep trying it, you know, like out or whatever. And like they're waiting for all the people to get really upset and like march into the ocean, like they used to in the store, you know, the game. Like, it's, it's not, um, none of this is being done in a way that's building any positive momentum towards an actual move. That's going to move the needle at all. You know? And so um, I, and I'm still not convinced John Fisher can pull off a new stadium anywhere. Like, I just don't know that he has it in him and he's had 20 years to, to prove that he has it in him. And um, we're no closer today than we were 15 years ago in getting a new stadium. So I, I just, I, Maybe 50-50 is even rosy at this point, <laughs> as I'm talking it through. <laughs> so, um, that's not to say they're going to stay in Oakland, but, like, I, you know, I, I think this this Salt Lake City news is probably a little more um, interesting than people are probably paying attention to. The fact that they're now creating this, like, we have a plan situation after having had the A's come in and talk to their two stadiums is probably something worth keeping an eye on. Um Although, of course, the Angels also announcing they don't think they're going to have um, much push to get a new stadium in Anaheim. And they already having, you know, some relationship with Salt Lake City with their AAA team there is also worth noting. But I think there's there's some moving parts here that are um, it, it just doesn't feel like the fire is there for Las Vegas right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Salt Lake City piece is interesting. It's it's very easy to be positive when there's nothing actually there when it's just all dreaming and vision. But Salt Lake City, the people there are being very positive about like, we want to bring a hockey team, we want to bring a baseball team, we're gonna do this. Um, And, and we're Yeah, you're not feeling that for about the A's in Vegas. Uh, I pointed this out earlier, but when I was speaking to the mayor of Vegas in that that interview that got a lot of attention, uh, she was very um, – she was like, we are getting an NBA team. Like, you know, that league has not said we're expanding, but it's going to, and we're getting a team. And then of course, when we talk about the age, he's like, eh, we'll see. So, yeah. um, and, and, and yeah. it's
3: interesting because like, and then after that, Adam Silver is talking about, Oh, we're already sort of there because we have the G league in two weeks. And so, um, I don't know if that was sort of a negotiating playback, but I think the NBA makes a lot of sense for Las Vegas. It's such a Las Vegas style sport with the way that the, the stars of that league are really like, you know, you're going to a show because you're going to get to see Steph Curry. You're going to, get to see LeBron James, you know, um, Baseball is just not that kind of sport, you know, like it's a different sort of it's a kind of a grind sport, which is great for big metropolitan areas for people that just sort of want a community gather and eat hot dogs together and stuff in the stands. It's not a glitzy sort of sport, I don't think. And like um, but the NBA is a great fit there and it would make a lot of sense to have, you know, an arena on a nine. Acre lot,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs>
3: that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and yeah, you know, while we're talking about the lot, so um, MGM CEO Bill Hornbuckle, they just had their um, their earnings report recently, and he said he's seen three possibilities for how a stadium, the A stadium, can fit on that nine acre lot. I feel like this is what's going to make or break it. Either they can get a stadium in there, and then they can, you know, they've got their funding, and they can go forward. However. Like, however that ends up looking and feeling, uh, they can do it um, if they can do it. But if they can't make it work on that lot, they lose that funding and then they're really back at like square zero. So, yeah. How big a problem do you think the lot itself is going to be?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's weird. That's not a lot of space. And um, I think the whole idea was that originally it was going to have a retractable roof because, you know, this I mean, even if you looked at the Super Bowl, right, it was a gorgeous day in Las Vegas. You could see from the like and it was indoors, right? Like it didn't need to be indoors and football, like whatever. It's different. But like um, you're going to have that for baseball in a fixed dome stadium for, you know, 81 games. And that's something Major League Baseball had really wanted to move away from. Um, but you can't fit. A retractable roof in that space, so you're already creating, you know, a stadium that's not maybe as like gorgeous as you thought it was going to be, and you've got a situation where it's got to fit into whatever this other resort type thing they want to build on that land is going to be, and you know the the strip is very unique in how you handle space. You're not going to have a giant parking lot right there that's going to be good for tailgating. You're not going to have like um, some of the other things you typically do even in the downtown ballparks, you know, around Major League Baseball. So Can you make a baseball stadium part of a resort on the strip in Las Vegas? I don't know that that is something that, and it it really takes some thought and planning. And, you know, if you're talking about nine acres jumping around a tiny lot, that tells me they're not sure that they can figure out how this really fits into the whole, um, you know, sort of look and feel of what the strip would be, um, because it really does have to need, it has to be something that people are going to want to walk up towards. And that's going to be competing with all these other things that have like Ferris wheels and like, you know, the Eiffel tower and all this stuff there, it's got to stand out differently than say Oracle park does, you know, on, you know, third and King in San Francisco, where it's like the, you know, the bay is there and you've got some apartment buildings. So, um, My guess is if it doesn't have a fixed spot yet, that's because they really haven't found a great way to fit it into their plans yet. And I think that's really worrying if you're somebody who's trying to get this done by 2028.
0: Yeah. And also it occurred to me that kind of cuts against what John Fisher said about why they haven't produced renderings yet, um, which was that, you know, we we've got the stadium part ready. We just we thought we'd do the hotel at the same time. Right. But it sounds like they don't have the stadium part ready. You know, surprise, no. surprise. Well,
3: and the thing is I've heard rumors that, you know, there is a rendering that like different construction and architectural firms are working off of to create actual physical things that would go in there but they're not showing it to anybody, which makes literally no sense at all. So why is that? Is it because they don't think it's going to be well-received? Is it because it can't fit in that space and they already know it already? And I don't know why they'd be having people working on it, but like, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And I thought it was weird too that like, Bally's was like, yeah, we're waiting for the rendering. And the A's were like, yeah, we're waiting for the rendering of the resort. And like, the two of them are not on the same page, but they're going to have to be like at the hip partners in order for this to work. Um, and that isn't a great sign either. You know, like, like it seemed like Oakland's communication on Howard Terminal was far more coherent than what's going on in this very small space and a private entity, you know, in Las Vegas.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I keep thinking of this as like a breakup where you can like the, the relationships a mess and then they break up and you kind of figure out like who was the bigger mess right. um, <laughs> as, as part of that. Um, Last thing I wanted to hit on with you um, just thinking about the A's the last couple of years, they, they won the division in 2020 and in the, the pandemic shortened season. And you know, since then they let Marcus Samian go, they traded Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, Sean Murphy, other folks. Um, And, you know, teams rebuild sometimes, but do you think this team, and then they raised ticket prices last year, do you think they are being bad on purpose, not just rebuilding, but being bad on purpose and keeping fans away on purpose as some kind of leverage ploy?
3: I don't think so, because for one, that would be the dumbest leverage ploy ever because you're not building, again, any positive momentum towards a new, like what city is going to want a team that sucks, right? Like that's problematic and i also feel like the baseball side has never been connected with the business side of the team for better or for worse like those folks are given a budget and they have to work with that budget and so um you know they were given the edict after 2020 that they were going to have to pare down payroll significantly and they were going to have to try to like you know do all this so they they made those trades the results of the trades haven't been great but i think you know they very much lined up with the type of trades that they've made in the past when they've been given similar edicts. So I don't think that was in, you know, in, in talking to those folks. And I mean, they care, they're embarrassed. Like, you know, you you talk to, um, people in the front office and it, it hurts that that the team is as bad as it is right now. Um, would they have traded Matt Olson and Matt Chapman if they could have had a different budget? Like, of course not. Like they're not, you know, morons. Um, but the team is bad you know because they were sort of forced into a corner where they were like we need to make this trade now because we have to cut down payroll because we've been told by our bosses we have to cut down payroll but on the business side the raising of prices and all that stuff is done so is done completely separately from the business o- the baseball ops side and i have no idea what they're doing right like there's literally nothing that makes sense there it's like um, you know they there's no business plan that could argue for why they've made the decisions that they've made. Um, Even just to the point of like alienating the the fans, because, you know, like you could have broken up in a nicer way. Like, you know, they were talking about relationships, right? Like there's, there's the, I'm going to leave a voicemail and never talk to you again. And then there's the, I want to be friends and mean it right. Like they went the voicemail route while they still had like, two years of living in the same house. Like, I don't, you know, I mean, that's like, it's incredible. they made it as awkward as it could possibly be. And like, you know, as much as the Raiders are, you know, there's a lot of things that are wrong with how they treated the city of Oakland. They did like at least really embrace the fans in their final, you know, couple of years in, in Oakland. And they like tried to like, uh, you know, sort of apologetically be like, we're sorry this didn't work out. Um, so it's weird to me that like they they've taken this sort of scorched earth approach because it was always going to end up with fans being pissed off and not coming anymore, and you can't raise prices and the same time and have that happen. So um, I don't think the baseball ops people are trying to lose on purpose at all. I think they're they've been given the crappiest hand you can possibly be given to try to build a team with in terms of resources and everything else. Um, but I have no idea what the business side is up to. Like it, it's, it's baffling that that's how they've taken this, this direction.
0: Yeah, you so. and me both on that. Liz well, Lockhart, thanks so much for joining us.
3: No, No problem. Thank you.
0: That's it for today. Rate and review the show on the podcast platform of your choice or tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.